0: What a great thing happening to John. That's a great thing. We have all sorts of things in our life that we would like to fix up. I'm I'm constantly amazed in the scripture that the pattern was that Jesus healed everybody who came to him and cast out demons from all the people that came to him. And when he sent out the 12, they cast out demons and healed all the people. And then he sent out the 70 and they cast out demons and healed all the people. And Jesus said, those that come after me shall do the things that I do, and even greater things shall they do. God's normal is for us to be like Jesus. We've got to be careful that our eyes don't get settled down and say, well, I just want to be like pretty much everybody else in my church. Well, God wants everybody in your church to be like Jesus. And We need to have our eyes above, set our eyes above, that our vision is on the Lord, and we're not thinking of anything less than that. It's going to stun us in heaven a lot that the Lord was with us all the time encouraging us to be greater and greater. It's going to really get a hold of us that he was there every moment, every day. But that's not my sermon, so I have to jump into the sermon another way. I'd like to talk today about Gideon, okay, in the Old Testament. So those of you who are experts in Judges, you know, will know that Gideon is uh, um, kind of very prominent in the book of Judges. And Gideon started out as somebody who was not well-regarded. Okay, so if you had the tribes of Israel, you would think, well, the tribes of Israel, they're all thinking we're all great each other. Well, the tribes of Israel kind of had a strata to them. And at the bottom end of the strata was the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh was the runt of the tribes of Israel. Okay, it was like Manasseh. That's the bottom. Well, in Manasseh, there was a a fellow, Joash, who had a son named Gideon. I think God's name was Joash. And when he had that son named Gideon, Gideon was not his firstborn. Gideon was kind of at the bottom of the family. Furthermore, Gideon's dad had created an altar to Baal. Not a good sign. Well, God chose to work with Gideon from the least tribe and the lowest in his family. Because, you see, God does not judge things the way we judge things. He does not judge by appearances or by knowledge, skills, and ability. He judges by the heart. The Bible says in 1 Samuel, For man judges from the outside, but God judges the heart. So the Lord is interested in the heart of people, and he found a heart in Gideon that would serve him. And the angel of the Lord came to Gideon, and the first thing the angel of the Lord said to Gideon is, I want you to take a bull and go and pull down your father's altar that he has built to Baal. And uh, Gideon was like, well, okay, I'll do that. So he waited till the nighttime, because he didn't want it to be in broad daylight. I don't know exactly why. He probably would have gotten beaten up in broad daylight. And he pulled down the altar that his father had set up to Baal, and he built an altar to God and sacrificed on it. And the next morning, when the city saw it and everybody said, they said, oh my gosh, what's happened here? Gideon has pulled down his father's altar. Well, we ought to grab him and kill him. There are many stories in the Old Testament where they say we ought to grab him and kill him. Have you noticed that? There are a lot of those stories. But they said we ought to grab him and kill him. But his father said an interesting thing. His father said, well, wait a second. He has actually insulted Baal. And Baal ought to take this up and fight against him. And so he calmed the people down and said, uh, you know, let Baal do his fighting here. Well, of course there is no Baal. Baal is a false god. There is no Baal. And Baal did not do any fighting against Gideon. But they changed Gideon's name and his name was changed to Jeroboam, which means he who fights against Baal. But Baal couldn't do anything. But that was the first thing that God required of Gideon was to take down in his house that which was exalting another god and exalt the Lord. Well, Gideon's people were faced with a really bad problem because three countries had come against them with a mighty army. And in Judges, it's very clear, at least in two occasions, they would describe the host of the army coming against them and said that their camels were without number. Couldn't even be counted. (coughs) Excuse me, And the, the countries were the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Men of the East, is what they called them, the Men of the East. So there were three groups that would come in, and they would wait until the Israelites planted, and then they would just come in like locusts and then just sit on their land. And the Israelites were driven out like to caves to live. And they would just eat up everything that they had there and lay waste to the land and take all of their livestock and everything. And they cried out to the Lord, and they said to the Lord, Why will you not deliver us? Why will you not deliver us? This thing is terrible. God, why are you so far away and won't deliver us? And our fathers tell us stories about how you delivered us out of Egypt. And you took our people and delivered them from bondage. But why won't you deliver us? And this huge host is just killing us. And it was very interesting because what the Lord said to them was, you know, I took you out of Egypt. I did all these things. He says in verse 10, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. He says, excuse me, and I delivered you out of the land of Egypt and out of the hand of those who oppressed you and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Anytime that God is a distance from us, it's not God's choice. It's our choice. God has come down. He has come close to us. I tell my Sunday school class, I'll tell you all, I love this, so I'm probably going to mention it ten times. But we should be so close to Jesus that if a mosquito bites us, he should fly away singing, There's power in the blood. That's how close we should be to Jesus. And Jesus is always beckoning us. He's always saying, come. In Revelation, it says that he stands at the door and knocks. He's always standing at the door and knocking. And in Revelation, he's standing standing at the door and knocking of the hearts of believers, not unbelievers. In the verse in Revelation, it's of believers. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Notice that the Lord isn't standing out in the hall, tripping you as you go by. No, that's not what he's doing. He's pursuing you. He's pursuing me. He's always pursuing us. And he's saying, open the door and let me come in. You do not have to beckon me. You just open the door and I will come in. He doesn't have to be bought, persuaded, bribed, enticed. You just have to open the door and he will come in. The Lord is always that way. And what he said to the children of Israel was, you have not obeyed my voice. And so he said, this is why this has come on you. So he sent Gideon to rescue him. Well, this is the problem. The armies facing Gideon. They're not exactly enumerated in the Bible, but looks like between 300,000 and 500,000 people, not counting innumerable camels, Three hundred to 500,000 people that were coming against him. So Gideon goes, okay, I will send out the word to Israel, and I will call people in to fight. Because we have this thing, I don't know how we can do it, but maybe we can get a bunch of people together and make this work. So he sent out word to all of Israel and said, we need to defend ourselves, and God has called me to lead this, and come with me to fight. And 32,000 men showed up. 32,000. So it looks like Gideon was going to be outnumbered 10 to 15 to 1. These are very bad odds, 10 to 15 to 1. And Gideon went before the Lord, and think about what you would say at that point. Have you ever felt in your life you're outnumbered 10 to 1? I think some of you have felt that a lot. My circumstances are going to overwhelm me. There's no way I can make it through today. I know many of you have started a day saying, if I can finish today, it will be a miracle. And somehow you finish the day. I remember before Helen and I had kids, we thought we knew what tired meant. We had no idea what tired meant. We had no idea. We got six, eight hours of sleep every night. We didn't know what tired meant. You know, you can't just turn off your parent buzzer at 12 o'clock and say, I'm stopping being a parent right now. I'll pick it up again at 7 in the morning. You can't do that. And unbelievably, large numbers of things happen between midnight and 7 in the morning. But they're not on your schedule. And you wake up the next day and you go, where's my energy for today? This is not necessarily a good story to tell before lunch, but you're going to get it anyway. When I was young, my mom tells the story that uh, one, of my, somebody, one of my brothers and sisters um, threw up about 11.30 at night. And of course, our family was not a decent shot. So when we threw up, we never made it to the toilet. And if you put a little bucket by the bed, we always turned the other way and threw up on the bed. You know, I, I don't know. We just didn't make a shot. At least that night, we didn't. Well, I have three sisters and a brother. And the first one threw up at 11:30. By seven o'clock in the morning, all five kids had thrown up. Not one kid made it to the toilet. And my mom laid down on the sofa at 7 o'clock, having been up all night with five kids, trying to get them pacified and, and clean up everything that was going on. You all know what this means. And she just looked at it and said, how am I going to make it through the day? We have Amalekites, Midianites, and men of the East on our doorstep all the time, and we feel outnumbered. And one of the reasons that we have stories like this in the Old Testament is so that we can see when it's impossible with men, it's possible with God. God's normal is completely beyond our capability. I'm going to say that again. God's normal is completely beyond our capability. We don't even perceive the realm that he is in in terms of power. And in Scripture, Jesus had to say over and over, that which is impossible with men is possible with God. And I know when I read Scriptures for a long time, I would kind of skip over some Scriptures and say, well, you can't do that. That I'd have to skip over that Scripture. And one of the Scriptures I skipped was when Jesus said, those that come after me shall do the things I do in greater things. Well, I would have to say, well, I can't do that, so we'll just skip that verse. But you can't skip verses. God means for us to do the things Jesus did in greater things. And that's God's normal. Now this is God who's the God of the universe. And we've talked about this before. This is an amazing thing. But the heavens show the glory of the Lord. And if you go out and see the heavens, you'll walk back going, The Lord, He is God. That is the way you feel. And we only see the smallest part of the heavens you know, um, I always like to do this stuff with the universe. It's really neat stuff, but if I was to get Eleanor on a really cool plane that could go the speed of light, okay, so how fast is the speed of light? So that's 186,000 miles per second. So that means, Leah, that if you went 1,001, that Eleanor could go around the Earth over seven times in that plane, (laughs) 1,001. Around the Earth, seven times. That's the speed of light. Eleanor's got a really good plane, okay? Well, if we put Eleanor at the edge of the Milky Way, which is our galaxy, and we said, all right, Eleanor, just take a beeline and run across the Milky Way at the speed of light, it would take Eleanor 106,000 years to go across our galaxy, at going at 186,000 miles per hour. 106,000 years. That's just our galaxy. There just happens to be 300 billion galaxies, and ours isn't particularly large. This is just the universe. This is just what we can see out there. When you see that, you know that God is in a different place. The Bible said he spoke and created the universe. The scripture says that he bows down, he stoops down to behold the heavens. He stoops down. In other words, to behold all of the universe, God stoops down. He's just beyond us. If we even just think about the concept of everlasting life, just life that doesn't end, our brain tilts. We can't handle it. We cannot wrap our brain around just the fact that I'm never going to die. If I asked Bobby Norman to sit down and lay out a schedule for the first 100,000 years in heaven... What would he do? Well, Bobby would come back to me and say, what if I lay out a schedule for two years? That's all I can do. I can't lay out 100,000 years in heaven. We can't conceive even of 100,000 years living, much less never dying. In the scripture it says, we are not of the Jerusalem which is below. We are of the Jerusalem which is above. This isn't our home. One of the reasons we cry out inside is this is just our temporary dwelling. When I was young... Um, which is a long time ago when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth. But um, I knew, you know, I mean, I knew Ramel, but there was a lot of, when you're young, you're just in a different dimension. And we had a tent all over to the side of our house, and it wasn't a nice tent that air flows through and everything. It was the old kind of tent that you get in, it, and it's about 100 degrees inside of it because it's just a tarp kind of a thing. And we would get in there. Well, we would play a game, and it would be da-da-da, and we were all excited, and... But that tent wasn't my home. That was just the place that I was in for a very short time, maybe an hour. On a hot day, maybe ten minutes. You know, That was just the place I was for a short time. This is the place we are for a short time. But God was trying to show these people, "You, you don't even think with your mind on the place that I regularly am. And it didn't matter squat to God how many people Gideon had. But it mattered to Gideon. And Gideon called out to the Lord and said, What's the problem here? Only 32,000 people came. And you know what God's response was? If you were to win the battle with 32,000, you would think you did it. You've got too many people. Now, at that point, at that point, Melody, what would you have done? What I would have done was to say, I'm not so sure I'm hearing the Lord's voice. Do you know Do you know what I'm saying? I'm not sure this is the Lord, because it's saying you've got too many when I don't have nearly enough. But when you have God, you have more than any army. I always love the scripture that says one angel came down in one night and killed 186,000 men. God just let one angel come in one night, 186,000 men. God, God is just not in this dimension that we are in. He is much higher. So he told, he told uh, Gideon to go to the people and said, those of you that are afraid, turn around and go home. Are you afraid? Then go around, turn and go home. Well, I'm sure Gideon thought, well, they knew there was going to be a battle. Only 2% are going to be afraid, you know, because they know they're going to go into battle, so we'll lose a few, but that's okay to do. So he went and told the 32,000, anybody that's afraid of battle, well, you can go home. 22,000 went home. 22,000 went home. Now, sometimes you run into some friends. This is not true at Skyland, but at other places. You'll run into some friends, and you'll be in a difficult place, and you're going and saying to them, Look, it's going to be tough, and I just want to make sure you're in the battle with me. Okay? It's going to be tough, but I just want to make sure you're there for me. Oh, it's going to be tough, huh? Well, I can hear my mom calling. I think I have an appointment. Uh, I've got to buy some land. Whoosh. They're gone. Two thirds left. And he was left with 10,000. And Gideon went back to the Lord. And do you know what the Lord said this time? If you were to win with 10,000, you would think you did it. Go back and take the people to the edge of the river. But these were people who looked at it and said, okay, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be tough. There's a battle. But there's a battle. I'm going to go with it. And then they came to the river. And 9,700 of the men who came to the river. Drink, took a drink from the river, but put their eyes on the river. Put their eyes on the river. 300 of the 10,000 took a drink, but put their eyes ahead to the task at hand. So I want to get that. 9,700 came to the river and put their eyes on the river. 300 put their eyes on the task ahead. And God said, separate out from me the 300. Now this is interesting. He didn't say... Tell the 9,700 they were bad. He didn't say that. He just said, Separate out from me the 300. Now this happens in a Christian life. In a Christian life, and Jesus told a parable about this, once you accept the Word, there comes persecution on account of the Word. There comes difficulties on account of the Word. You're sharing with somebody or you're doing something in your life and they come up to you, Tim, and say, Who do you think you are, Tim, holier than thou? They come up to you and they say, so you think you're a Christian. You think you're better than me. Or they say, you know, your kid is really a problem. You may think you're a Christian and got things going, but your kid's a holy terror. And if you were a real Christian, you'd be in charge of your kid. Stuff like that. That comes right at you. It comes right at you. There's difficulty on account of the Word. There is pressing through an enemy. We talk about Satan... Most people don't have a feeling for how powerful Satan is. Satan in this world rules this world. And without Jesus, Satan would rule us. We have no hope against Satan if it was not for the Son of God within us. But because we have the Son of God within us, Satan has no hope. But Satan is powerful among the world. He told Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world because it's given unto me and I can hand it out to whoever I want to. But God has become victorious over this world. Jesus said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And Jesus, there's no comparison with Satan and Jesus, but Satan is a very much a roaring lion, and he very much comes that way. Well, there's difficulties in life, and there's difficulties when you start out, and Jesus said that there, he will be with us, we will come through those difficulties, but there are difficulties in testing. He said, if, they, if I was tested, you will be tested. And instead of Jesus a couple of times, he said, this happened that you were tested, that there will be trials that will test us. That's okay. It's a great thing because the Lord doesn't leave us. But he's always looking for us to choose him in the situation. To choose Jesus, to choose Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you'll be faithful in the very little, you'll be faithful in the great. If you are unfaithful in the little, you are unfaithful in the great. So he does things that you and I would say, well, this is a little thing. But Jesus is saying, I'm testing you to see if you'll be faithful in this little thing. Will you be kind to your little sister who doesn't seem to have a loving bone in her body? Will you be nice to this person who borrowed $5,000 from you and now pretends there was never borrowed any money ever and they're never going to pay you back? Will you bless this person who curses your child? Will you do that? Will you do those things? And I used to say, well, I want to skip those things and go to calling down fire from heaven. That's the good stuff. And God said, no. And this is actually a problem in the scripture because I I mentioned this before that when the disciples received power to cast out demons and to heal, they went through Samaria and they came to some people that didn't treat them right and they turned to Jesus and said, should we call down fire from heaven like Elisha did and, and turn them into cinders? And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. I have not come to hurt and destroy, but to save. But those disciples had felt such power. They were ready to use that power and turn people into senders. What if God gave you the power to call down fire from heaven? I dare say there'd be 40 or 50 people in Atlanta that would be senders this week if you had that power. Do you know what I mean? But God is working with us. He molds us. He prunes us. But he starts with things that we might think are small. But since they're from God, they're big. Because what makes something small or big is what God thinks of it, not what we think of it. And if God is saying to be kind to the person who's unkind to you, it's big because God said it. When God is saying, loan that money and forget about it, and don't even think about charging against that person or gossiping against them because of what they've done, it's big because God said it. If we will not regard what God says as big, God has to keep us in the little until we do. You see, Jesus regarded everything God said as big. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. He wants us so close to Him that our lives can walk and we say, I only see what Jesus is doing. And we need to be that close to Him. And we can be that close to Him. But we've got to be faithful in the thing the Lord gives us today. One of the worst things to be, not the worst, one of the most challenging things for me to be faithful in is patience. I have things that go and you just go, you know, you made that mistake eight times. I don't know if I can be patient with you again about that same thing. Do you ever feel like time is just wandering right by you and you haven't got time for this? And so I got, I mean, I'm not good at it in traffic. The Lord has to deal with me. You'll get this person who sticks their nose out into the lane. It blocks cars up coming here and then somebody coming the other way figures if I stick my nose in here I'm going to be able to catch the block and cut it across this and this. And it's possible that you get traffic where it can't go this way and it can't go this way. And you look at these people as you drive by going, who do you think you are to stop all this stuff? And do you know what God is saying? Get underneath that person. Get underneath that person and pray for them. Because I tell you what, they don't even know who they are. They don't know whose family they were really meant to be in, that they are to be sons and daughters of the Most High. They don't know. And Jesus had that kind of love. He's asking us to have that kind of love. So when Gideon was in the middle of this, the 9,700 went on. Well, those people who go beyond difficulty, they have a difficulty, but they pursue on with the Lord, they come to a river. And the river is a type of blessing. But in the Scripture, 97% of the people who come to the river put their eye on the river. And so when you come to blessing in the Lord, it's not like blessing in the world. It's great. And you'll hear some people say, well, I just want the presence of the Lord. I want to experience that blessing from the presence of the Lord. Well, I'm sure that we do. That's a great and wonderful thing. But it's not for us to put our eyes on that because the Lord has called us on. And what the Lord has called us on to do is where we're supposed to put our eyes, to follow Him and not to say, I just want to go to the place where Jesus gives me blessing. And some people travel church to church to church to church saying, where's the blessing falling? I want to go to the church where the blessing is falling. That's what I want to be in. But that's not what God calls But pretty much 97% of the people, once they've tasted that, they go, this is where I've got to go. I've got to go find that blessing. That's what I have to have, that refreshing of the Lord. So a small fraction, about 3%, have their eyes on the Lord and say, I'm going on because where does the Lord want me? It's not that I get blessed, it's where does the Lord want me? Now, that's a hard choice because if you're tasting that blessing, you're going, let's just sit here. I had a friend one time and we were over at his house and we ate lunch and his mother prepared a great lunch and we sat down in some chairs and it was early afternoon and I remember us having a conversation (laughs) and the guy there, his name was Bob and We were saying, well, what are we going to do this afternoon? And Bob had just eaten a wonderful lunch and sat down in a chair, and he was just absorbing it all, and he goes, we are doing something. Because he was resting after lunch, to him we were in the middle of doing something, resting in the blessing. Okay, God will continue to bless us, but the mystery is that Jesus is the blessing. And that's why it says in Ephesians 1:3, for every blessing of God is found in Christ Jesus. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in Ephesians 1, 3. It says that Jesus is the treasure hidden in the middle of the field. There isn't blessing that's dispensed by a magic thing. It is Jesus himself. And this is a miracle of the way Jesus talked about things. He talked about this all the time. People would talk about things as if they were uh, dispensations given out by God. Jesus would talk about things as his nature. So, when he went to the death of Lazarus and was talking and and Mary said, if you had been here, he would not have died. And Jesus said, he'll be resurrected. And she said, I know he'll be resurrected, the general resurrection from the dead. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the resurrection. When Jesus taught, he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the bread who has come down from heaven. He was not the dispenser of these things. He was those things. He is the blessing. That's why in Revelation, all the saints take off their crowns and put them down in front of Him. And they say, worthy is the Lamb. The crowns are everything you have that say you're important. And we take all those things down and put them down in front of Him and say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and majesty and praise. Because He is the blessing. That's why it says in Scripture, in John 17, 3, to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. That's what eternal life is, to know the Father and the Son. We're not going to get up to heaven and go, look, there's this place in Romans that doesn't really go well with 1 Peter, Jesus. And you need to explain this before we really go at least a year into heaven. And I also need to understand this. In Deuteronomy, not, no, no. It's not going to be that at all because he is the fulfillment. He is the living word. There will be nothing where we go. Jesus, you've got to give an explanation. He is truth. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, He was made unto us righteousness, consecration, redemption. Jesus is those things. And we go, well, Jim, when you're talking about that, that's complicated to understand. How how can you understand? It is complicated for our minds to understand. It's higher than the ways our mind thinks. That's why it says in Isaiah 55, his ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. He is higher, but he's much, much better. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians, the very thing God has prepared for them to love him, the eye is not seen, the ear is not heard. It hasn't entered into our minds. We haven't got it figured out. Someone that tells you, I know heaven's going to be just like this, they don't know. It's better than what we're thinking. And you say, well, I can think pretty good. I'm telling you, it's better than what you're thinking. After Jesus sent the 70 out and they came back and had power over demons and power over to heal the sick, and they rejoiced that they had power over demons, you know what Jesus said? He said, rather than rejoicing that you have power over demons, rejoice in this that your names are written in the book of life. He said, that's what you should rejoice for. You want to talk about good news, we have got some good news. I don't care if anything happens in the world. I don't care if the whole world, doesn't matter what happens in the world, we have been delivered into the hands of the Almighty God who loves us and gave His Son for us. And we have something great to look forward to. But this blessing that the Lord sends is in the Christ. It is in the Christ. But most people are still at the place where it's still receiving to me, and the thing of God is not the main thing in my life. Jesus is not the main thing. It's what I can get from Jesus. be like my wife coming up to me saying, well, you've been a pretty good husband, but now you're going to retire. And the best I can calculate, our income's going to go to one-third of what it used to be. Now, I'm not so interested in changing my spending habits, so the way I'm interpreting this is you're not a very good husband anymore. Well, that's a very nasty thing to say. I can say this without Helen being here. But, you know, that's a very nasty thing to say, that all of a sudden your value of a husband drops because you've retired, you know, and now she can't spend as much money. And you'd say, well, that's not a very good relationship. That's a very shallow relationship. That's the way we are with God. We say, well, God, I want to see more stuff flowing my way, and I've been a Christian 25 years. I've put up with all sorts of crummy teaching and pastors that don't know what they're doing. Well, I've been a really great person, and you know, I need to get more and more of this blessing, you know, 4% a year. I want an inflation increase. God doesn't do that. We're just not even in that dimension. But there were 300 who had their eyes on the Lord, and they went ahead to the Lord's purpose. And God took those 300 and routed the enemy. But this is really interesting. After he routed the enemy, and you know the story, they blew the trumpets, they, they had the, the lights, they went in and did, did all the things, and the enemy was running. The enemy actually ran through Ephraim. Well, God had, Kideon had sent out to Ephraim for Ephraim to come and be a part of this, but they just hadn't. But the main body of the normal army of Israel was sitting in Ephraim. And as these people were running, they ran through that area. And Gideon sent a message up there and said, Look, all the Midianites and everybody are running through your area. You know, just catch them. Well, they didn't do a lot of fighting, but the, but the army that was in Ephraim actually caught three princes. And they were high up princes. And then here comes the 300 running, chasing everybody. And the Bible says they were faint, F-A-I-N-T. They were tired. And they came up to the army at Ephraim. And you know what? What do you think the army at Ephraim should have said to them? They should have said, thank you for routing the enemy, winning the victory, and you have done a great job, and we're entirely in your debt. That's what they should say. That's not what they said. They said to Gideon, who are you going and grabbing all this glory? How about that? Now, what would you have said were you Gideon? Well, there might be a temptation to say, who am I to grab the glory? Do you know what I've been through? Do you know the night... You'd just let them have it. But Gideon didn't say that. Gideon said, I haven't done anything. Look at what you've done. God has given three princes into your hand. You have done a mighty thing. And the people in the army at Ephraim went, You're right. We have done the big thing and sat down and celebrated their success. And then who chased the Midianites and the Amalekites and the men of the east who weren't nearly destroyed? Who chased them on? Gideon. Gideon was the one that had to chase them on. Do you see this? If you have lived in the world for a few years, you have seen this. This is what people do, this is how it goes. But Gideon was humble and faithful to keep following the Lord through steps one, two, three, four, five, and on and on and on. Well, at the end, the people actually realized that Gideon had done a great thing. They realized Gideon was humble. They realized that he had followed God and that they really had not. And the people said, Gideon, you should be our ruler. And in Judges chapter 8, it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your son's son also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. And verse 23, And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Do you see that? Gideon is one neat guy, okay? Now, all the way to the end, I was kind of hoping the story would just end right there, but then Gideon made a really bad mistake, and it wasn't it wasn't that he hated God or did something like that, but he took all the spoil that he had gotten and the gold and all the special things, and he made an ephod. So an ephod's kind of like a breastplate that, that is a special thing, and Anyway, but he took all the precious metals and put it in there, and the city that Gideon had come from was a place called Ophrah, like O-P-H-R-A-H, Ophrah, and anyway, that ephod sat in Ophrah, in and it says in verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city of Ophrah, and all Israel paid homage to it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Now that's... The enemy will keep working on us always to try to perturb and twist the thing of God into something that he can maneuver and control and will keep you from God. The spoils from that battle were reformed into something that people paid homage to, exactly opposite of what God would say, and it was a snare to Gideon and his family. So there is always a temptation of the enemy, no matter what level that we get to, to take something that's the work of our hands and exalt it higher than God. In the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see over and over and over, God is so intent that his people recognize him as the one and singular God and regard him as holy, as holy. When he met Moses, he didn't turn to Moses and say, you've had a rough life. You've gone through 40 years out here and done this and done this and done this. When he met Moses, he said, Take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. God is holy. He is altogether holy. He cannot come in contact with sin. He is holy. And when we say holy, we only have a limited vision of holy. He is absolutely holy without any sin, without any imperfection. He is holy. And he's called people to be holy. In Leviticus he says, For you shall be holy unto me as I the Lord am holy. And when he laid out the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments was, Do not put a God in front of me. You shall have no gods before me. The next commandment, You shall not make any graven images. Don't do that. In Romans 1 he says, Because people regarded God as common, they knew he was there, but they didn't regard him as holy that God put them over to a depraved mind because they didn't regard God as holy. God is holy. And it's so important for us to see that He's that way, and we are not to invite God into the realm of our existence and say, God, you have a seat at the table. God doesn't have a seat at the table. He is above the table. God's opinion is not considered. God's opinion is holy. And this is a huge thing that we don't do well. We don't do that because we have tons of pride in our country. And sometimes we just say, well, maybe God should have a chance to speak, maybe not. But most Christians keep veto rights with God. And what I mean by that is they'll listen to what God has to say, but they maintain the authority to say, if I don't like it, I'm not going to do it. If you maintain veto rights with God, you can only go so far. God is looking for people who will say, because you said it, I'll do it. Not because I agree with whether it's likely to succeed. Not because I agree with anything else about it or my assessment of the risk-benefit ratio or the return on investment or anything like that. God, if it's you, I'm going to do it. That's what he's looking for. That's what Jesus did. That's what he's looking for in us. So that our hearts should be towards discernment figuring out if it's God or not God that is what the bible says we should pursue and in hebrews it says that discernment comes by reason of use so that by walking with the lord and talking with the lord and living our lives we can discern what he wants so it's the lord's will that's our desire so this is a this is a huge thing and it's something that the lord has tried to just emphasize all through the old testament and all through the new testament is that The Lord cannot have something set up in between us and them. And we can make an idol out of our pride. We can make an idol out of Skyland Church. We can make an idol out of a process. We can make an idol out of lots of things. But we have to exalt God as the number one, as holy, and be grateful and rejoice in him. And the mystery of the scripture is that Jesus said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That God's purpose is that there be joy. You know, in the beginning, the angel told Mary, What about Jesus? I bring you good tidings of great joy. That was about the birth of Jesus. Every single time Jesus comes into a part of our life, Darrell, it's good tidings of great joy. When he comes into our work experience, it's good tidings of great joy. When he comes into our relationship with our spouse, it's good tidings of great joy. When he comes into our tired bones at 2.30 in the morning, it's good tidings of great joy. Every time Jesus is there, it's good tidings of great joy. Now, Lee, if I came up to you and said, well, there's been a mistake in the lottery, and actually you and Raymond won $800 million, would that be good tidings of great joy? I want to tell you this, it would not be a pebble of good tidings of great joy compared to Jesus being there. It doesn't compare. It's just a completely different dimension. So Gideon was a man of God. But we can see in the Gideon story things that we face as Christians. But the greatest thing to see is in times that are hopeless because God is there, there's always hope. But not only is there hope, there's victory. There's always victory. And most of the time, he brings victory in a way we don't foresee. Most of the time, He brings victory in a way we don't foresee. I think there are a dozen testimonies just looking out here that people can say to that, that God brings victory, that we don't that we give Him the glory because He's that kind of God. So I'm going to ask the worship band to come forth, and we're going to have a time of uh, prayer at the altar. And I'm just going to have a short prayer here to finish the sermon, but I, I want to uh, just mention up, we of all people have a tremendous, tremendous blessing and that we have real cause for hope and joy. Not pretended cause. Not we hope the Falcons will do better this year. No, we're talking about eternal things. Things that matter forever. And we have been invited and participate as sons and daughters in the family of the Most High God. There is every reason to rejoice in that. But there are difficulties that we face, but we don't face them without he who has no beginning and he who has no end. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we pray and ask that you touch inside of us that we desire you more than all things. That you touch inside of us that our eyes are not on blessing or on fear or on encumbrances or circumstances but our eyes are on You. Transform us to be like Your Son, Jesus, that we might be lights to this world, that You might be glorified. In Jesus' precious name, amen.